Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each episode, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. So this episode, we are joined by Reverend Dr. Michael Neighbors, Senior Pastor of the Historic Second Baptist Church of Evanston, Illinois. Um, Recently, Second Baptist Church has become a leading faith center in America in facilitating race talk solidarity circles in local communities. And since 2019, Dr. Neighbors has been part of the steering committee for Evanston Reparations, the first municipal reparations program in the United States, allocating $10 million to Black Evanstonians to repair historical damages due to racism. So I invited Reverend Dr. Neighbors to speak with us today because the bulk of truth-telling and reparations work happening in the U.S. today is taking place on a local level. And so Dr. Neighbors is doing the work, and we need to know how he's doing this work so that we can do the work. (laughs) So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Thread me or Insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at freedomroad.us. And then please, you know, come to us and visit on Substack or or Patreon, right? So um, we are in both places at Freedom Road. So keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and let us know what you think. So Reverend Dr. Neighbors, how would you like for me to address you, sir? I have had my good home training, which is making me not able to call you Michael. <laughs> how would you like for me to address you? Um, you you can you can call me Reverend Neighbors. That's fine. Thank you so much. Yeah. Fabulous. Okay, we will do that. We will do that, Reverend okay. Neighbors. Thank you. Okay. So Reverend Neighbors, can you share with us your faith story? How did you we usually start there? Like just to give you a give our listeners a sense of who are you who who is this person we're talking to how did you come to faith uh, that's a great question. So I was born and raised in um, a, a sort of average African-American family in Michigan, in Kalamazoo. My father worked um, for um, a auto a supply company, and he was on an assembly line. He worked that job for about 40 years. And he was also a deacon in the local Baptist church. There were several of them. And my mother was a missionary. And so I grew up in a sort of typical Midwestern uh, I would say conservative and maybe even fundamental, you know, African-American uh-huh. Baptist church. And that that was my experience. And I grew closer to God when I um, had a sort of life-threatening illness at the age of 14. Oh, so wow. um, I was down for several months. And um, I remember the church praying for me and the pastor visiting me um, often. And that helped me to, um, I think, grow stronger and to come Mm -hmm. out of that really dark moment. And I became uh, very focused on religion at 14, received a call to ministry as a freshman in college at 18 and was just real focused. So, you know, yeah, that was that was my beginning. That's incredible. So, so you, do you mind letting us know like what was the illness that you were dealing with? Because it helps us to understand the struggle. I sure will. And they say that um, testimony is good for the soul as well. Um, I was involved in drugs at a very early age and Mm -hmm. um, I um, took a drug that I wasn't exactly sure what it was. Um, College students down the road, I'm pretty sure it was LSD. And it just um, shut my complete metabolism down. And, um, and, and doctors were very worried about whether or not um, I was going to survive for the first few weeks. Wow. See, that does. It helps us to understand your story even more and appreciate it. And especially that, you know, it's LSD. We, we're talking about the 70s, right? Or the 60s, yeah, 60s, 70s. 70s. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking mm-hmm. like the Jesus movement time and all of that. Yeah. And yes, yes. My God. So you were 14. Can yeah. I ask, was your home church in Kalamazoo, was it a Southern Baptist church? It wasn't Southern Baptist. It was a National Baptist Church. And I I would say that when I call it conservative and fundamental, it really wasn't for that day and time. But from what I've learned since then, especially my theological understanding of God at work in human history, it was pretty doggone conservative. But I wouldn't have I wouldn't have known that then. And people wouldn't have called it conservative for that day and time. But what's weird, though, because, I mean, it does also that helps as well, because we know that Dr. King 
started the progressive Baptist church in some ways, because he, he was not really accepted for the work that he was doing in the national Baptist church. Is that right? That that is correct. Yeah, he was a part right. of a small group of African American pastor, uh, pastors that stepped away from the National Baptists, and it had to do with tenure for the president. And Jade Jackson had been the president for several terms, and a group of younger African American pastors that was really led by Gardner Taylor, you know, from mm-hmm. New York. Um, they mm-hmm. wanted um, to put somebody else up to at least vote for, um, but they shut that down. And so out of that confusion came the birth of Progressive National Baptist Convention. Got it. Got it. Thank you so much. So now how did you come to the work of reparations? So, yeah, that's a that's a good question. So obviously, you know, I went to I went to seminary and uh, the first church I started serving was in Princeton, New Jersey. Not many people were talking about reparations then in the 1980s. A couple of years after that, you know, John Conyers, the congressman from Detroit, introduced H.R. 40. And that's been over 30 years. So that was the first real national discussion about reparations. Um, But I went from New Jersey to Detroit and pastor there. And then I came over to Evanston about eight years ago. And an absolutely dynamic older woman, Robin Ruth Simmons, introduced mm-hmm. reparations at the local level with a resolution RS-126. And that was asking um, the city of Evanston to take responsibility for the racism that did incredible damage to black residents over the years. And so she came to me and shared that she was interested in trying to get this resolution passed and she needed the support of the community. And I wear several different hats. One of them is being the pastor of Second, but another one is being president of the Evanston North Shore National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. So when she came to me, I was like, yeah, I think you've come to the right person. I didn't understand it initially, and she educated me more and more. And then before you knew it, a few months later, uh, we were under the national spotlight. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, what was that like? First of all, can you tell us what did you learn were the things that needed to be repaired in the in the racial relationships in in Evanston? Like what when she said we need reparations, what is it that was outlined in terms of to repair what? Yeah, Lisa, that's a great question. And what the resolution did is it established three or four primary issues where African-Americans and Blacks all together had been damaged due to racism historically. And the first um, the first issue was housing and uh, housing um, damaged African-Americans in so many ways, but primarily redlining, um, other significant issues with regard to leases and um, and and tenants and and home and uh, apartment owners. Uh, that was a historical issue where there was so much injustice that was done due to race. The second issue that was brought up had to do with education. Obviously, you know, like most of the country, Evanston had um, separate segregated housing. Uh, They had a school called Foster School that was only for black children, grades K through eight. And it and while I want to be very careful to say this, even though there was segregated um, schooling, I would say that most African-Americans that went to those segregated schools also had tremendous benefits because the teachers were outstanding. They were all black. The administrators were outstanding. They were all black. And they also went to church with you. They also lived next door to you. So you had this really immediate connection that a lot of people, I think, fail to recognize when they talk about how monumental um, integration was for schools. Um, It also had some setbacks when it came to black students and the relationship with teachers and administrators, because you can bet your bottom dollar when those schools closed, they did not hire those black teachers and those black administrators to go over to the white schools. That did not happen. So that's, and I think that's, first of all, really, really important for us to understand as you as you draw this distinction between um, poor education and segregated education, as in black segregated schools were not always um, at a disadvantage in terms of the teachers, Um, the teachers taught, you know, my mom, my mom grew up. I mean, literally I I live one block from where my mom grew up in South Philadelphia. Oh my, my. (laughs) Yeah. I moved back. I moved back to the neighborhood about three years ago now. Um, and we literally in 2020, uh, a couple of months 
from now, October 2020, I moved back. And okay. so from the window I'm speaking, let's talking to you with right now, I can see her junior high. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. And that is fantastic. Yes, yeah. It really is. It's a very special feeling. And then yeah. to my back, like one block down is her elementary school, child school. And, um, you know, she tells the story now of the fact that in her school, her white teachers in this integrated, as in integrated teachers, it was still an all black school. It was it was segregated due to de facto segregation yes. versus yeah. de jour, right? Which is sure. what Brown yeah. was, was was addressing. Yes. But de facto, um, as in the district lines were drawn in a way that she could not go to another school, the white school, which was two blocks away. Yes. Um, and so when she got to her school, she had books that were hand-me-downs from the white school. Yes. Having having been used two and three generations of their people. And now they finally get them with ripped out pages and covers and writing it. And I mean, all kind of stuff. And that's the that's what she got after integration. Right. So after yeah. integration, she got de facto segregation and uh, and subpar um, books and white teachers that she said did not teach. Yeah. They just didn't mm. teach. Mm. Meanwhile, I talk with my auntie Ruby Sales, right? So I call her yeah. my auntie because she and my mom were friends in the movement. Oh my and goodness! So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yes. that's fantastic! Wow, that's an it icon. Really, that's a that's an icon, you know? <laughs> yeah, it really. I, I'm very very blessed to have had. I mean, multiple conversations with her too, even on this podcast, right, a while back, and and she was she made it very clear that her education in the South, which was segregated, um, she had black teachers who taught. Yes, and yes. while no, they didn't have the new shiny books, but they lived the history, so yes. they really, really taught um, yes. those students, and so that's what you're talking about. Um, and I think it's important. I think it's important to draw out the textures. Um, and the the complexity of this education conversation simply because some people will hear what you said and they'll say, "See, segregation is fine. We didn't need Brown versus the Board of Education." Right, right. And then and then others will 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 see, hear what you said and they'll be like, "You know, he's he's anti-black," and that's yeah. not true. That's not true <laughs> yeah, either, yeah. right? So yeah. yeah, and I think you bring. I I appreciate you bringing that out. And what I mean by what I mean by the positive attributes of our, you know, uh, many of our uh, parents and grandparents going to a segregated school had to do with relationship. It did not have to yes. do with the quality of the books. It didn't have to do with the quality of the uh, equipment or the quality of the schools, chairs and, and desks. All of that was hand-me-downs. The schools were inferior to white schools. All of that needed to change. So that's why we needed integration. But what I'm saying is that many of those Black students who were in those schools also excelled. They ended up graduating, going to HBCUs. They ended up doing, you know, phenomenal and amazing work. And, you know, yeah. my in-laws are some of those groups. They went to a segregated school in Princeton, New Jersey. So, you know, even, even a, a community like Princeton had the Witherspoon School for Black Children. And it was all the way up to eighth grade, like Evanston. Wow. By the time you get to the high school, you know, they figured enough black students probably would have, you know, dropped out of school or whatever, that they didn't have to worry too much about segregation at the high school level. So even in Evanston, as well as Princeton, by the time you got to high school, it was it was integrated. So I, I think it's important to be able to share that. But I think that your legal analysis of what that meant um, is spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. So so then this is important to understand. So if so, there was both deficit and benefit, yep. right, to having Black-led Black schools. Um, the deficit was the fact that the way the system worked was that the Black schools got those hand-me-down books and equipment. And so my mom actually talks about that now. She says she can tell um, when she is talking with someone who who may not use the right grammar or whatever, she knows they likely went to a school that didn't have the the equipment, didn't have the books, um, or they or they or sorry, they went to an integrated school where integrated, as in they had white teachers who didn't teach them, didn't expect mm. them to lead, so didn't teach them to get to the place to lead the world, right? So. That's the deficit. So is that what the reparations was for in terms of education? 
It it certainly was. I mean, that's a major part of it. And I I love the way that you brought up the analogy just about the English language and the way that 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 people talk because it had to do it had to do with that. And one of the things that we may have missed in this conversation is I'm not a hundred percent sure. But I'm almost positive that the black teachers in those segregated schools were not paid the same uh, amount of money as the white okay, teachers, same as administrators and all of that. Yeah, that's yeah. for real. Yeah, but so in at, that, I'm sorry, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, you're, to your point, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. I I do think that is a major part of what the damage was, and you can then see that being passed on from generation to generation. So you can go back an awful lot. And that school in Evanston did not shut down the segregated school until the mid-1960s, even though you had um, the segregation case that was decided by the Civil Rights, uh, by the uh, Supreme Court in 1954. So, you know, everybody was late bringing that on. Everybody was late trying to implement it because of the reality of racism. That was the primary reason why folks were not jumping on board to make that happen both in the South as well as the North. I think that your story is incredibly instructive because we're not talking about the South. We're talking about Illinois. In Illinois, they did not integrate until the 1970s or 60s. Did you say 60s? Mid-1960s, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mid-1960s. So you have basically about a decade that it took them to actually do some integration after or desegregation after Brown versus Board of Education. So you said housing and education, were there any other issues that were brought up in the resolution? Yeah, there were. The the two other issues that were brought up in the resolution, there was a primary one, which was was economic development. So, Mm. So one of the things, Lisa, that we were really very good at doing is we had a local sort of Black historian who had actually started an archives organization called Shorefront Legacy 30 years prior. So this started in 2019. So 30 years prior to that, Dino Robinson had been collecting data and information about Blacks in Evanston and on the North Shore. So when the resolution passed, one of the first things that city council asked was, how can you prove that, you know, there was discrimination and how did it happen? And so Dino was able to go into the archives, look up information about housing and the discriminatory patterns that blacks faced in housing. He was able to go to those same archives and look up information about education and about economic development. So those were three primary areas that we were able to um, document and bring back to the city council and to say, this is exactly what the discrimination pattern was. And this was the exact result of it in terms of housing. At one time, Blacks lived all over Evanston. There was no um, area that was only for Blacks because there weren't that many people who lived in Evanston. But when the community started getting wealthier and people started understanding the value of property along the lake, along the the shorefront, as they say, um, Mm -hmm. Blacks who lived in that area were forced from that area to move to an area that that the city used for dumping grounds. That's oh my the gosh. Fifth ward. That's the fifth ward. Absolutely. Wow. Wait, and yes. can I just say the impact on um, family wealth, the ability of families to build wealth over time, that's huge. Yeah. It is huge. It's enormous. And that's another big oh. issue that Robin um, Simmons has brought to light in every discussion that she has with folks. The wealth gap in Evanston between black and white families is enormous. It's probably over 50,000 and it could be up as high as 75,000. And and you just can't take away from the fact that if the majority of blacks who live in Evanston are not homeowners, but are renters, how are you going to send your children to school? You know, how are you going to really expand your horizons in so many different ways? Most of us who are homeowners are able to send our children to school because we'll take out a loan or a second mortgage in order to get our kids to school. So so black families are not afforded that opportunity. And that's probably true in so many different parts of the country as well. You have to take out loans. And it wasn't it wasn't bad, Lisa, when, you know, we were taking out loans when I was going to college in 1977. You know, I think I paid twenty five hundred dollars a year, you know, just 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 for a tuition and and room and board. But now it's fifty thousand or seventy five thousand dollars. And children are less inclined to say, I think I'm going to acquire that debt because it's going to be advantageous for me in the future. It's true. It's really true. So then that shuts our people out of really 
huge possibilities because we know that that pay gap is real yeah. um, with with and without a college education, especially if you're a person of color. Yes. So can I can I ask you how is this work? And now I'm kind of asking you to put on your pastor's hat, right? So mm. as a pastor, I'm sure you have moved your congregation and also been on different committees in your area and throughout Evanston to work for racial reconciliation or racial equity, racial justice. How is this work of reparations distinct from the typical ways that the church would move forward in racial reconciliation? Well, that is such a great question. You know, I, you, you know, um, in 2018, because of what was happening in the country and when, you know, Trump being elected and all of that sort of thing, I stood up and declared on the first Sunday of the year that we were going to wage an all out war on racism in Evanston, that we were going to eliminate and eradicate racism as a congregation. And that was a really big deal. And the congregation is a very, uh, in many ways, a very progressive congregation. And they accepted that. And we went to work on how that was going to happen. So um, I look forward to sharing that um, with you. That story is an amazing story. And I, I think that it really is a story that can potentially be modeled and replicated in other parts of the country. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So, Pastor Neighbors, you kind of set us up, um, you know, before the break. Um, Can you share with us the story of how your church got into that work of racial equity and justice? And what did it look like? And how did it what was its relationship to the work you were doing in reparations? Okay. Uh, Thank you, Lisa. I wish I could take credit for it, but I want to say that there is a history at Second Baptist Church that preceded me long before I arrived. So there are other Mm. pastors, there are other lay leaders in this congregation um, who have really helped to make Second Baptist, a beacon for social justice in the community of Evanston. So it goes back to when I was probably in junior high school. So when I arrived, I was able to build on that kind of reputation, which was really um, great. And when I made that announcement, there were folks that came to me and said, Reverend, I think that we can do this. I think that we can do that. And one of the first things that we started doing is um, people started pointing us to um, resources that were providing grants to do the kind of work that um, that we started doing on race. And so I don't mm-hmm. know if you've heard of the Proctor Conference. The Proctor Conference is located right down in Chicago with uh, the That's amazing right. Dr. Iva Carruthers. So, you know, who is an Evansonian herself? A lot of people don't know that. So, oh, wow. She, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. She was very interested in what we were doing and uh, created an opportunity for us to get a grant to do the work. And, mm-hmm. um, and we did uh, a sort of two-year grant where we were able to educate every single one of our ministries in the church, both internally and the work that they do in the community about the importance of challenging and eliminating racism. And we did that pro- programmatically. You know, I would say if you think about our music, a music ministry of a typical church, we would um, create uh, a community concert. And the community concert was held at the high school auditorium, which seats 2000 people. And the focus of that concert was on educating the community about the need to eliminate racism. So that's one of the ways that we were able to do it with one of our ministries, our youth ministry. We work with other congregations and other um, uh, houses of worship that it's interfaith. So it's not just Protestant or, or Catholic. It's every kind of group that you can think of. So we started having workshops and we had Um, African-American students at Garrett Seminary teach the workshops because they were so closely related to the high school kids and that worked. So we were doing doing everything that you could imagine. And and, um, congregations started calling us and saying, you know, how can we be connected to the work that you're doing with Solidarity Race Talk Circles? So we've done about 10 different circles now with different, well, we've done a lot more than that, but we've done about 10 relationship building efforts with different houses of worship in Evanston. Um, to- what, what is it? I mean, you're going to have to go back. Forgive me. What yeah. is a solidarity 
race circle. So, uh, so did I say it right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. You did. A solidarity circle on race talks is focused. You have a trained facilitator who knows how to conduct and lead small group settings. That's number one. The trained facilitator is also focused and trained on leading conversations on race, which can, which can often be a difficult task. Our training came through two organizations. One of them was the Moran Advocacy Center, which focuses on um, at-risk um, youth in the, um, in the judicial system. And they oh, have been wow. doing that work for about 20 different years. So we did some real amazing training with them. And the other one was with the local YWCA whose mantra in Evanston has been eliminating racism for the past 25 years. So our folks got trained through them. And then we did the logistical piece, finding a white congregation or a white congregation finding us and saying, we want to do a solidarity circle on race talks. So you have five people from that congregation, five people from Second Baptist, white and black working together and talking about race. And the facilitators are leading that. We usually come forward with a current situation. So when we started, we were talking about George Floyd and Mm -hmm. the aftermath of George Floyd. And what does that mean to you nationally? What does it mean to you? And then bringing it closer to home. How -hmm. can you find racist acts and racist actions in your local community that you can address as a congregation and help to eliminate? Wow. So it sounds like you, it's very, very organic. And the work that you're doing is very locally based. It's actually leading your congregation and other congregations in the area forward in growing their value and practice of racial equity and justice. Is that, that sounds like, is that right? It is right. And that speaks to your, that speaks to your brilliance, Lisa, because I didn't bring up the word organic, but in every conversation that we had before we started these, everybody said it has to be organic. You can't come with a prepackaged, you know, program on how to talk about racism and how to end it. So there isn't, yeah, you have the right word and it is working that way. And now we have about six or seven congregations that are waiting for us to finish the work that we're doing right now with one congregation, Lake Street Church. um, And and we can't wait to start with the others. So it's wearing us out, but it's important work. My goodness. Okay. So let me just also get a little bit more of the context. Now, Second Baptist Church, is that a historic black church in the Evanston area? It is a historic black church. So we just celebrated our 141st year um, last year. And so we are excited. We have been around as long as a sister church, Ebenezer AME Church. So both of us are about the same age, 141 years. We started about the same time. Now, my mom told me this history of the Baptist churches and why, 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 when you go to almost any town in the whole country and you see a second Baptist church, usually, not always the case, because I actually found one where this was not the case, but usually <laughs> the second Baptist church in any town is going to be black because the black folk were not allowed to attend the white church. And so they started their own church. Is that basically what happened in your, in your church's case? I, I think it's close. I would say that the variation would be, you're, you're not, you're, you're right 95% of the time. Most Second Baptist mm-hmm. churches are black churches. But I would say mm-hmm. it wasn't that they were not allowed. Most of these Second Baptist churches, blacks did attend the white churches. And those white churches were called First Baptist Church. However, there was something that would always arise where Black people were not afforded the same voting rights. Black people could not become an officer in the church. There was no question that they would not call a pastor to be the pastor of a church. So, so, uh, you know, after Reconstruction, when so many Black um, houses of worship were rising in the Deep South, and, you know, blacks had been going to white churches in the north if they were Baptist. But what happened after Reconstruction is whites were not allowing blacks um, to hold these positions. And, and they were not allowing them to participate in state activities or regional activities or national activities. So when right. Second Baptist going out on missions, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. when Second Baptist started in 1882, you know, three years later, the first national Baptist Convention started in 1885. And Mm -hmm. so everybody knew at that time 
whites were not going to allow blacks into these important positions because they were paid positions. And there, there was money that could go and flow right back to your local church that could help build your church up as well. So blacks decided we're going to do it on our own and rightfully so. Wow. So how long did it, well, first of all, oh, actually, I'm sorry, go back. Um, when you, now we're going back to the efforts you're doing that are your church-based efforts, as in the circles, um, the trainings that you're doing, what's the relationship of that work to the reparations work? So it's a great question. And I think I'll have to share with you, I think it's an independent work. I think mm -hmm. reparations is a different kind of work. But what we found happening is that when we were, I'm going to be point blank and say, when we were educating white folks about addressing and eliminating racism in their own community and sometimes in their own congregations and in their own businesses, this was being done under the canopy or the umbrella of the burgeoning reparations movement in Evanston. So inevitably, every conversation we had in the circles led to what was going on in reparations. And so oh, what happened was um, all of these white churches began to say, what can we do to help out with reparations? Wow. Yeah, because they were sort of standing on the sidelines. And at the time, reparations was, you know, the city reparations program. And mm -hmm. what we decided to do is to start a nonprofit organization that would also be able to raise money for reparations. And we call that Reparations Stakeholders Authority of Evanston. So that was started three years ago. And when oh, the white congregations became aware of that, and especially the clergy, they said, we want to do something to help out RSAE. And so they had a rally. It was an interfaith rally in Fountain Square, which is the center of town in the summer of last year. And it was mm -hmm. absolutely amazing. So in the, in, in, you know, the rally, ever since I've been here, the eight years I've been here, any interfaith program that we've had, I've always been at least the organizer or the co-organizer. So, so my white clergy friend said, well, you know, Dr. Neighbors, you can't be a part of this. I was like, what do you mean I can't be a part of this? I'm a part of everything. And they said, <laughs> and, and they said well, it, it, we feel like it's our responsibility. The burden is on us because we're trying to get our white congregations to raise money that will be donated to RSAE, Reparations Stakeholders Authority of Evanston. So we certainly want you to be there, but we want to be the ones to challenge our people about the need to contribute. So I said, okay, that makes sense. So they had the rally. They said, we're going to raise money and we'll report back to you at the Martin Luther King Jr. Interfaith Service. That would have been January of this year. We had a wonderful service. It was in the fifth ward, the black community. There were more white folks at, at that service than you can imagine. And mm. at the end of the service, they came forward and said, we want you to know what we've raised. And here it is, $942,000. Wow. 18, 18 houses of worship. Oh my God. It is, it, it is, it is just amazing. So um, th those were the pledges and they're just about um, all the way in now. I think they're maybe $250,000 short of that, but that's coming in small um, ways. It's coming in large ways. One house of worship has given $250,000, Lisa. See, now this does not just happen out of the blue and it doesn't happen if you just start with reparations and then, you know, kind of push it in, down the throats of, of the white um, or congregations without leading them as well. So yeah. that's, what, that, that's what I feel like when, when I ask the question of what's the relationship, I think you've actually answered that question, that the work that you're doing um, through your congregation is actually helping to move the white congregations forward to move, uh, to actually support the reparations work that's happening in Evanston. My goodness. That's incredible. Yeah, you're, you're right. And another way of saying that, I think that in order for any local reparations movement to find success, and it is beginning to find success in other areas, you, you know, there are 100, over 100 reparations initiatives that have been introduced around the country right now. If I had any advice that I could share with those folks, and I've been traveling around the country and doing that at the inv invitation of houses of worship or clergy groups, it's building relationships. You have to take the time to build relationships with folks. 
And for me, coming into Evanston at a time when so much was happening, you know, yeah. I started in 2015. That was the summer that Dylan Roof shot up Emmanuel AME Church, you know, in, oh, in yes. Charleston. So, yes. so the first thing we did is that, you know, we confronted that. We, you know, that that's horrendous. We had a community-wide meeting to talk about that issue, and we were able to begin to build relationships. So what does that mean? You know, you march with the rabbi in town at the civil rights uh, the Civil Rights Act March of 2015. You know, we went down mm-hmm. to South Carolina and marched 20 miles together. You know, we traveled mm-hmm. together with other um, clergy as well, black and mm-hmm. white, um, Palestine and Israel, you know, mm-hmm. other parts of the country, Washington, D.C. You know, when L. Sharpton called for uh, 3,000 clergy to gather together a few thou- a few years ago um, uh, to address the social injustice issues that were occurring at the Justice Department, Several of us went to that. And um, so over and, time, you're building yes. common experience together, which also brings common understanding and leads to common action in your town. You got it. You got it. That's yeah. the- <laughs> you, you, you got it. It takes time. Yeah. It does. Yeah, it does. But I mean, it also I mean, here, I, I, it takes time and it takes intention and it takes money. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. people have mm-hmm. to be invested. Your your rabbis and the other white pastors that are going with you to to march in Charleston yeah. or yeah. to to stand in solidarity um, with the with the Action Network. I mean, what your pol- political action network, what you're really seeing is you're seeing people over time become a. Um, Maybe the word is accomplices in the movement as opposed to even just allies or even just people mm. who are learning, right? Mm. So they've gone from learning to now they're allied with you and now they're actually feet on the ground. They are walking with you. They are, um, they are, this is their fight too. Absolutely. And I, I love the word accomplices. You know, we've been using the word allies for a while, but uh, again, I think that it, it, it is spot on. And it's something that can happen in every community. So I've been invited to different places like Palm Springs, California. They've got a reparations initiative under a sort of umbrella issue called Section 14. I've been invited to Roanoke, Virginia. These are clergy groups inviting me to talk about their reparations initiative under an umbrella called the Gainesboro Neighborhood. I've been invited to Dayton, Ohio, to Nantucket, you know, uh, Massachusetts. So everybody has an interest in what is happening. Sometimes they just don't know how to start. And it starts with relationships. And with reparations, it starts with at least four pillars. And those four pillars is you've got to have somebody in local government who is supporting you. That's usually Mm -hmm. some, it could be the mayor or it could be a council person or an alderman, depending on, you know, what form of government uh, your area is running. And then the next piece is you've got to have um, somebody in the religious community. And uh, it should be somebody with an interfaith perspective. So they have to have pretty broad horizons and uh, ability to be comfortable with people of different faith and working together mm-hmm. in harmony with one another. Um, the third piece that you have to have is you have to have that historian. I was talking about Dino Robinson in a local area. You have to have somebody that has an expertise on the history of racial injustice in that community. And that's, and that's the third piece. And the fourth piece, which is critical, Lisa, is yeah. you have to have somebody in education. It should be somebody in higher education. So huh. if your town or you or city has a university, then you should find somebody in that university in the president's office that is willing to say, how can we help? How can we be instructive? And how can we share our resources with your reparations initiative? Those four pillars will make that thing stand, but it has to stand on relationships. This was fabulous. I mean, literally, (laughs) this is literally what we need. And ironically, you took the question right out of my mouth. You went right into the lessons like these are the the pillars. My next question was going to be, what are the biggest lessons? Well, I don't even need to ask that anymore. (laughs) So I want to ask you now, what are the biggest smoke screens that you have encountered? Like reasons people say they can't do it. Oh my, oh my. Yeah. So, um, and how did you move past them? Yeah. You know, that's such a great question. So obviously the first smokescreen, and I want to sort of, um, differentiate between the two 
different reparations initiatives that we have going on in Evanston. There's the city-wide reparations initiative that started the whole thing. And remember, then it's the nonprofit organization that I talked about as well, RSAE. So let's go to the citywide piece, because I think that's the one that's sort of being replicated in other parts of the country. Okay. One of the biggest smoke screens is that the city council and the mayor is going to say, great idea. We empathize with the black community. We just don't have any money. There's just, we, you know, we're stretch tight. We don't have the money to um, set aside for reparations. You know, we can't even balance our budget. So we have that issue. And that issue was remedied by an older white woman who had been an older woman for 30 years. And uh, that was Ann Rainey. I have to at least um, say her name. Mm-hmm. They were sitting around city council talking about, we love the idea, but we don't have the money. And she came uh, up with this brilliant idea. She yeah. said, we are looking at applications for cannabis dispensaries right now. They are across our desk in the same way that this resolution is for reparations. Why not tax 3% on every single cannabis sale um, for these dispensaries that we're going to allow uh, to happen in our city? And that's how the first initial money came forward. $10 million over a 10-year period taxation on cannabis in dispensaries in Evanston. Isn't that amazing? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. Yes, that's exactly right. And and as um, cannabis becomes more and more legalized around the country and more regulated, and also as as more people of African descent get in on the the profits of that new business, um, new business uh, realm, there's all kinds of benefits that happen there. And, And cannabis... You know, there's all kinds of debates about it, but the reality is, is that it has, it's been, been well recognized as being a necessary um, ingredient in the health and the healing of many illnesses that um, yeah. it is just, it's just the best sure. thing out there for it, you know? Sure. So Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And then, of course, so, Lisa, wow. you, you know, there's po- there's poetic justice because so many of our people yes. have gone to jail and gone to prison because of marijuana possession, right. because of selling mar- marijuana, because the, and there's poetic justice to all of this right right now. Wow. Yeah. Go. What is her name again? Her name was Ann Rainey. Yeah. Ann Rainey. <laughs> Nice yeah. to meet you, ma'am. Wow. <laughs> what a great idea. What a great idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So money, money is the biggest smokescreen. We don't have it. And and then coming up with, with creative solutions like that yes. is one way. And look at that. Just adding it. What is it? 3% tax or 3 cent tax. What did you say? Yeah, 3%. 3% tax 3% on each cell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nothing. We can yeah. do that across Absolutely. the country. That's right. So you know, there are mm-hmm. other there are other smoke screens. Obviously, some people mm-hmm. I think are uh, just hide the idea that they don't like reparations because some people feel it is a handout. I'm not. I'm not going to uh, be in favor of reparations because it's a handout. Black people were not the only ones who were discriminated against. Not everybody has um, uh, asked for reparations. So why should we make a reparations program just for black people? So that's a big smokescreen as well. And what you come up with then is you go to your local historian and you say, yeah, I know there have been different forms of um, of discrimination that has occurred, you know, but look at what has happened specifically because of racism. And then look at the specifics. We're talking about the uh, the wealth gap between white families and black families, which is absolutely mm-hmm. tremendous. It doesn't matter what that white family is, right? They can be a German American, they can be Scottish American, they can be Irish American, whatever they are faced, they are mm-hmm. still beneficiaries in that particular group when it comes to the wealth gap. So you're able to talk about that kind of smokescreen as well. And that was another one. That's good. And so when we come back, we're going to go to break now. But when we come back, I want you to talk a little bit about what's the difference between reparations and just program development that actually addresses issues. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road podcast.
Okay. So Reverend Neighbors, I would like for you to address this question that I often get, which is what's the difference between reparations and let's just say starting a program that um, addresses, like that, that gets more, more good books in schools. Like, why can't we just get more book goods, more good books in all the schools and say that that's, that's what we're going to do as opposed to reparations? What's the difference between those two? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I mean, there's a there's a both and situation. Let me just say that. I think if we need more good books in schools, we need more good books in schools. And Florida, my God, they need books in schools, period. Period. (laughs) (laughs) They need the right books in schools. So so there's no question about that. But when you think about reparations, you're talking about accountability. You're talking about a local community that is going through an exercise of what we would call reckoning. You're reckoning yes. with the past. You're reckoning with what has happened in this community. And you're also reckoning with the fact that you, whites, are beneficiaries of what happened in the past and blacks are victims of what has happened in the past. So reparations then is seeking to address that damage that has been done. And we have to be transparent in that by saying there's no amount of money in the world that can repair the damage that has been done. But this is an effort that we are making in order to make sure that we are reckoning with our responsibility for what has happened. If I want to have a right relationship with my neighbor who is white or with my, my, with my neighbor who is black, if I want to have a right relationship with somebody that lives in another neighborhood that mm-hmm. is of a different race than me, then I have to factor in the reality that I am existing on a system that has done this. It has been divisive. It has been horrible. It has been disparaging. And it has hurt black people in so many ways. That's what racism is. Talking about the reality of racism not just in terms of houses that were taken away, not just in terms of jobs that we couldn't find, not just in terms of education that was denied. But Lisa, we haven't talked about the spiritual damage. We haven't talked about the mental and the psychological damage that has been done because of racism as well. So you mean to tell me you just want to put a new book in a school and make up for all of the centuries of damage that that is done, that so is good. passed That's on. So good. The DNA is passed on through the bloodline and, and in ways that we don't even intentionally do it. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would wonder sometimes, my God, why are my grandparents so mad? Why are they so angry? Why are mm-hmm. my parents so angry? And I just came in and said hello. But they're mm. dealing with the reality of the separation and the damage that was done to them. And so that gets passed on. And it took me a long time to not be mad myself. You know, I got, mm-hmm. I got six kids. I'm like, okay, I, wait a minute. I can't be yelling at my kid. But, you know, I had to learn oh, how yeah. to sort of decompress all of that. And not all of our people have learned how to do that, as you well know. That is so good. I mean, what you've just said, it recognizes the reality that we are not all living in vacuums. We are living on the foundations of what was done before. And you cannot say that you want right relationship with with a person or people group in your community and just think you can like declare now is the year zero. And now we're all going to move forward as if as if there was no history, as if as if your ancestors did not vote for a particular policy that impacted my ancestors in a particular way, or maybe you weren't even here, but to recognize that that stuff happened and it happened because of city wide policy because of municipal policies. And so the relation, this is what people often ask me. They're like, well, but I didn't do it. I, you know, I don't need, I don't have responsibility for this. Yes. Well, no, but you live in a city that did it. And the city needs to now have right relationship with its citizens. Oh, my goodness. You live live in a nation that did it. And the nation, the state, um, this institution, you are a part of this institution. You're part of the state, part of the nation. That Those different levels of organizational bodies have to have right relationship with the people that they broke in the past. Oh, I love it. That's what it it looks, right? Uh, Yes. it's just, uh, honestly, that, it's coming that, from a, a reparative justice I want to hear more from model. you, absolutely. Oh, no. 
<laughs> well, I mean, I, you know, you know, I brought you on here because this is our. We love doing this. is This is our work, Absolutely. right? So it you is. just yeah. getting me a little fired up. So forgive yeah. me for getting a little fired up. But yeah. I do have another another question for you. So you mentioned the spiritual work, right? So, um, but you know, a ten million dollar. How does a ten million dollar, um, um, uh, grants not grant, but work of reparations, offering of reparations, um begin to heal the spiritual break yeah, that happened yeah. through the oppression. Yeah, you know, well, it's can a, it? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I I don't think that it can I don't think it can do the healing, but it can take the steps to begin the process. Oh, so so the, the the steps are important and one of those mm-hmm. first steps um Lisa is accountability. The the fact that mm-hmm. if your community says, "Yeah, we've we've done wrong and we've been able to identify an amount of money that's not sufficient, but we've been able to identify an amount of money to begin to try to redress and repair some of that damage. Mm -hmm. I don't know about every African-American person. I can't speak for every black person. But for me, that says, I can't believe that a city has taken ownership of this wrong that has been done. Mm -hmm. When we have a nation that has yet to say, I'm sorry for 240 years of slavery. That's right. So for me, mentally and spiritually, there is a kernel or a seed of hope when I see a town like Evanston saying, yep, we have been educated, we have learned, and we have set aside this money to begin this task. And I have good news for you today that $10 million has blossomed to $20 million. Hello. So now, now the city wow. of Houston has been able to identify $20 million that they oh. are focusing on with regard to reparations. But but oh. don't get me wrong, that's still the tip of the iceberg. And yeah. that's why the nonprofit organization, Robin likes to tell everybody now, when that 10 years is up, however much we've spent, there will be a new mayor and a new city council. And they mm-hmm. may decide we're not going to continue this reparations resolution. It's done. It was 10 years. But the nonprofit organization is run by black folks <laughs> and they and, and they sit on the board and, and prayerfully that will go on for as long as is needed. It could last for another right. 100 years. That's really good. So Evanston Reparations Committee, um, uh, is that that is that's not the, on, the nonprofit. That is the city uh, committee it, that actually guided yes. the process. It, it is. Who, okay. And who was guiding the process in terms of were there, were there an equal number of white and black people? Was it majority black? Was it led by black with, with representation from the white community as well? What was that demographic like? Cause we need to get a picture of it. Okay. So when it first started, when um, reparation, the resolution was first introduced, um, there were only a couple of African-Americans who were a part of the city council. So Robin was one of them mm. and another unnamed person was another one. And she was the only one who voted against reparations, by the way. So all, uh, so there were, there were nine votes wow. and, and the vote was eight. The vote was eight to one in favor of moving reparations forward. So you had, you know, wow. predominantly white folks. So right now mm-hmm. you have, um, you have two African-Americans who are on city council and both of them are also on the reparations subcommittee. And that subcommittee is appointed mm. by the mayor. So you have folks who are on city council, but most of them are community residents. Robin, for instance, she was appointed by the mayor. She's no longer an older woman. So she's right. doing her own thing now, but she's an Evanston resident. So she is the chair of the subcommittee uh, for reparations for the city. And then wow. you have African-Americans who've been named by... Um, who've been named by the mayors. One of them is a wonderful, brilliant woman named Claire Barbara McFarland, who is a lawyer by training. She's a sister who's absolutely dynamic and and doing a great job. Another one is an older gentleman named Carlos Sutton, and he's a lifelong resident, three generations. He's on it. So it's really a nice mixture of older and younger um, Black Evanston residents who are on that committee. Wow, that's fabulous. And so that committee is a city-based committee. It's actually part of the city structure. But in order to make sure that there is adequate uh, representation on the committee, they've actually created what I'm hearing is like 
kind of like at large positions yeah, that's to right. be able to bring yeah. in people of African descent to have a say so in what, what, you know, how we do this. And I think that's really important. I actually talk about that in, in my book, Fortune, that, yeah. you know, one of the guiding principles for me in reparations is that it has, like, the plan has to come from the community that was broken. Yes. That if you're not, yeah. if you're not actually that's taking right. the lead of the community that was broken, um, then, then the relationship is not being repaired. The relationship is still one where the the former oppression is only being continued in the present under yeah. the guise of, quote, reparations. But yep. so yep. it looks like the Evanston um, City Council has found a way to yep. actually um, mitigate against uh, what their their organic numbers would actually um, dictate, which would be a mostly white reparations committee, which really would not, would be inappropriate and it would be right. wrong. Right. It, it would yeah. be, it would be, you know, I, you know, if you're, if you're in a town that is like maybe 90% white, you know, mm-hmm. and they want to have a reparations program and because they know that even they have done damage against the small amount of blacks who are in there. Yeah. I don't and there's know a reason that, why they're 90% white. <laughs> yeah, not a reason why they're 90% white. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what that su- subcommittee would look like. But you still have to have black representation on there exactly for the reasons that you just said. Uh, otherwise, mm-hmm. it is not going to be reparations. It's going to be something else. It may look like a handout. It may look like, you know, this or that. But when the when black voices are on there expressing why reparations is important in the first place, then you're able to move forward. Mm, that's good. And, and honestly, for me, I mean, I would say that that in that kind of situation where you have a 90 percent white city, um, you know, some people will say, well, we have one black person on there. That's representation. I would say, nope, <laughs> that you you actually want to get um, at least half and half, if not if not majority black or majority people of color on that reparations committee. Um, and that is going to be a, a feat. It's going to be a task, but it's part of what it looks like to fix, to repair that relationship. So can I ask you, can I ask you now, what is the role of faith in this process of doing reparation? I think it lies at the base of everything that folks are involved with. It just so happens that I know everybody that's on that subcommittee are people of faith. They go to somebody's house of worship, right? You know, so I I just know that's the case. And I think that everybody who has been participating in this, Robin herself is a member of Faith Temple Church of God in Christ, where she was literally born and raised into that church. And, um, And faith plays a major role in how she began and is moving forward. And I want to say this because I think it's important. And I know that we're in the last um, segment here. So faith is also important because race work is hard. Race work is extremely difficult. And when you talk about being the first reparations initiative in the country for black people, I can't begin to tell you the number of threats and the number of um, verbal assaults and social media assaults that folks have have received, um, primarily Robin, because she's the face of it, but I receive my share and others as well. So your faith has wow. to be able to say, I know that there are more people of goodwill in this world than these evil people who are responding, you know, to this work that we're trying to, to do. So I think that faith yeah. is able to do that. And, and I think that as the reparation initiatives begin to grow locally around the country, that, that's why I mentioned that one pillar, that faith pillar, is going mm-hmm. to be instrumental because mm-hmm. folks will begin to attack the effort for the some, mm-hmm. some of the reasons that we shared. But if you have the interfaith community in mm-hmm. a local area that is supporting it, then that's going to really lower the antagonism and the vitriol that a lot of people have. Because a lot of these people, believe it or not, are sometimes in other people's churches. Mm. That's so good. Wow, that's good. You know, it makes me think of like the the ethics of our faith and it makes me think of um another like another uh value of faith that I've seen um in the public square is not even it, it's it's in addition to the to the why or even, you know, just the it helps me to overcome. It also guides the way we do it, right? Doesn't it? Has it guided the way that you do what you do? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think it has. I, I, it has in Evanston. Let me say this now. I don't know how it's going to work in Detroit. I don't know. I don't know how it's going to happen work in Philadelphia. You know, but uh-huh. in Evanston, and I think maybe 
because of some of us who are helping to lead it. You know, I'm in my 60s. I'm 63. So if I were if I were 35 or 40, I would be leading this with a different kind of hat and a different kind of focus. There's a lot more sort of righteous indignation, I think, when you're when you're younger and 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 the and the sense of wanting it right away and the demand uh, sort of changes uh, the way you articulate your message. So I'm a little, I'm a little old, I'm a lot older now. And I think as a result of that, um, the way that I come across is probably gentler. And I think Mm. that, and I think that especially for our allies, that's probably a little bit reassuring. And, and, and I, and I know that that has happened just because of my years of experience. I think that I'm able to get more done by being able to talk to somebody rather than cussing them out. You know, can I, can I, can I reframe that? Because I, I I think it it has less to do with your age, although age brings wisdom. (laughs) It has, I think it has to do with wisdom and I think it has to do with the wisdom of the long view and the long view doesn't understand this work. This, even this reparations work as being Mm. a three-year task, right? Mm. doesn't understand it as being a sprint. This is a marathon and it's actually like a, a decathlon um, that goes back hundreds of years and you are simply carrying your forward, like you're part of the, of the torch bearing thing forward to the, for the next generation. And so faith, your faith gives you the ability to have the long view and understand that the work that you're doing, the steps you're taking, the plotting, and honestly, the, the patience that you have to have, it gives you the ability to have patience um, yeah. and hope that on the other side of the patience, on the other side of the marathon, on the other side of the disappointments, on the other side of the holding your tongue at times and on the other side of calling somebody out at yeah. times is going mm-hmm. to be God. Yeah. Yeah. Well well said. I mean, a- a- absolutely. You sound like the preacher on this call. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> I, 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 I love I'm just reason. saying. <laughs> I love the way you worded it. And I, th- I, and I think you're spot on. And, you know, one of my favorite texts is this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So mm. when I talk about all of these people that are involved in the reparations movement in Evanston that have really made it successful and made it the first, even with all of the negative critique that we still get, I really firmly believe that divine providence has been involved in this and that it didn't just start in 2019, that it started with those um, Black Evanstonians that first arrived in the late 1850s and everything Mm -hmm. that they had to put up with from generation to generation as this city was being built and constructed and made millionaires and then millionaires made themselves billionaires. Our people were a part of that. And so our our story about reparations has to also include the narrative of that um, of that peculiar and different African American people who lived and worked and loved and laughed and died in this eight square mile region named Evanston. We are here because of them, and reparations exist because of what they went through. So here I am in my part, doing the best that I can ready when the time comes to hand it over to the next folk to lead it on as well. Yeah. So good. What is your hope for Evanston? When you have, when you think of Evanston beyond yourself, what is your hope? My hope is that Evanston will be a community for the next 100 years and more that will really be an expression of the diversity and inclusive inclusivity of our nation and world. And that Evanston can say while we may not have we may not have it all together, but together we have it all, and that is the mm. essence of beloved community. Oh, that's so good. And what is your hope for our nation? That they will follow suit with Evanston. Because <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. think the nation is going to lead the way. I think that's going to be local initiatives like ours. And you know, mm-hmm. Philadelphia is doing something as well, Lisa. We talked yes. about that in our last yes. conversation. So it's going to be these 100 different initiatives where small communities have managed to learn how to talk about race, how to get along, and how to build each other up instead of tearing each other down. And when we do that in enough places, then at the national level, Congress is going to see it. 
the White House is going to see it, and a new Supreme Court is going to see it as well. I don't think the yes. ones that are going to see it. It's going to take a while, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be real here. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. One last question for you. What is your hope for the church? Yeah. Oh, Lisa. So, you know, my hope for the church, and, and, and you say that generally, so that seems to be the black church, the white church, and every other kind of church, church that you can imagine. Yeah. My, my, my hope is that at some point there will be enough folks in in churches across the land that will really stand up and recognize and reflect the love of God. And the love of God means that everybody is welcome in God's church. The black, the white, the rich, the poor, men and women, gay and straight, everybody can lead, everybody can serve. And this is a place where God's love will be felt and received and shared by everyone. That's my, that's my hope. Yeah. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests lay their heads that night. This episode was engineered and edited and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. And Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us, and stay in the know by signing up for our updates, which come out on Substack. Somebody say Substack. So go to (laughs) Substack Freedom Road, and that's where you'll be able to sign up to get our updates. And we will not flood your inbox, but we will send you some really great content from really great writers. We invite you to listen again and join the conversation on Freedom Road. And if you are one of our paid Substack subscribers or one of our Patreon subscribers, our patrons, then you get a very special treat. You get a backstage conversation with Reverend Dr. Michael Neighbors. 